Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's season two of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. We're having a lot of fun. Got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're talking about guitars. Sometimes we talk about food. Sometimes we talk about aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just having a good old time. We're chewing the gristle for pity's sake. You know, and gristle is where fat meets flavor. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, my good buddy Daryl Sturmer, hometown boy, done very well indeed. You've seen him with Genesis, Phil Collins, Jean Lupante, Gino Vanelli, fabulous musician, one heck of a great fella, and what a great story. Tune in. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, another festive installment of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Cockery. I'm here with my old buddy and musical icon. I'm just going to throw it out there. Daryl Sturmer, oh, how, how the heck are you? I'm doing really well. Really well. Excellent. Glad so good the, to see you. You too. I'm actually seeing you. Indeed. The, but, not, will, not in, but I did run into you at an airport uh, during the pandemic, I think it was. that is. I think it was just right before the cataclysm really took foot. I was on my last trip. Uh, that I took before lockdown, and you were just returning from someplace. So I oh, saw I know. you I, right before the re- shit hit the fan. You're right. You're right. I was t- returning from a Genesis re- kind of reunion rehearsal to see if we wanted to do a tour. So tell <laughs> us about that, because that's a juicy tidbit right there. <laughs> okay. Well, this was back in, uh, this would have been, I think, February uh, right. 2020. Right. And uh, we had gotten together with Genesis just for a two week. We, we did this before, like back in 2006, they got together for two weeks just to see if there's the chemistry is still there. Is, do we still have it? Are we too old for this? And that worked. We ended up doing a tour in 2007. So we did this again and said, it's working. And so I was coming back from New York where we had rehearsed for two weeks and just got kind of a set list of, together of stuff that we wanted that they wanted to do. And that's when I saw you at the Milwaukee airport. So when you do something like that, are you like preparing for it by kind of going over the old Genesis records? Are you prepared for going in there and saying, well, last time they wanted me to play bass on this tune, but this time I might play guitar. I mean, how do you, how do you mentally prepare for that? Well, Mike Rutherford, who pl- plays guitar and bass, and that's who I switch off with, uh, right. sent me a list of what they were probably going to tackle, see what we might want to do. We didn't do all, everything that's on the list. I already knew uh, what I would be playing on it, uh, although Mike would put on it bass or he'd put on it guitar for me, uh, what we do. And nothing was different from the 2007 tour, although we added maybe a couple songs we didn't do before, but we had done them in previous tours in the 80s. Right. You know, stuff like that. So uh, I knew what I was going to be playing generally, but I didn't know how we were going to medley the songs you know, because they they tend to do that. Let's we're not going to do the whole song. We're going to do half the song and then go into something else. Right, because their repertoire is immense. Yeah, it's really hard to figure out what you want to do, what they want to do, because they know that the audience is going to be like, "Why didn't they do that song?" But you know, you're never going to please everybody. Right. So you please ourselves. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's that's what they Mike and Tony and Phil get together and they kind of figure out what what works. And also, you know, frankly, you know, there's certain songs that maybe seem a little out of date at this time. So you don't want to do those. But we do do some songs during the Peter Gabriel era as well, which really work out well. We kind of modernize them a little bit, but it works. And uh, is Chester Thompson also involved with this iteration? No, he's not. This is uh, Nick Collins, Phil's son. Okay. Who, who by the way, is, is a fantastic drummer. He toured with us on the Phil Collins tour in 2017, 18, and 19. He was 16 when he started rehearsing with us. Unbelievable. And uh, and during that three years, he just, like, improved. You know, in those three years, it was like 15 years. You know what I mean? Right. He just, you know, because he's so young. Now he's going to – now he just turned 20. Oh, he's an, he's so, an old – he's an oldster. Yeah. yeah. And Phil said, what's great about having Nick is it keeps the, the number of, of the band like at a sensible level, because we're all like, I'm 68. Phil is 70, 71. Mike Rutherford, 72, 20 banks. Nick is 20. Right. So it brings the average down a little bit. 
<laughs> like maybe more like your age. You know? <laughs> I don't know what you are, but you're. Just I just turned the the big double nickel, fifty five. Ah, oh, fifty five. Okay, that's. I wish I was. <laughs> no, that's, it's it's all it's all okay. Absolutely. You know, it's it's one of those things as you, as you get older, it's just, you know, uh, I find it's liberating because there's just so much less that you waste <laughs> time giving a shit about. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of truth, a lot of truth to that. What used to bother me doesn't bother me anymore. Absolutely. But I, I still I still tackle going out with Genesis or Phil the same way. I want to prepare. I want to get it together. I don't want to embarrass myself. Sure. And uh, that's what I do. I, I come to rehearsal and I, I'm I'm almost ready to play the show if 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 they're going to do the show a specific way. Well, and they they've always been, and Phil has always been very rehearsal oriented as far as like making sure that by the time you hit, guys hit the road, yeah, there's nothing left to chance, and that that's pretty much true, right? That's really true. It's really true. I, and everybody is, it, it, we're all prepared. We're ready to do it. Uh, we usually rehearse a week or two just as a band, and then we go into production rehearsals, which could go on for two weeks. So by the time we hit production, which is with the stage and the lights and everything, we're kind of ready to go at that point. But it's still, once you get on stage, it feels different. And right. you just, okay, this is where I stand. This is how this goes. And you get into a little thing about how we're going to do that particular song. Maybe I should walk over there during that song, you know, right. things like that. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun, and we get it kind of together. And then once we get up on stage, there's still that those nerves the first one, two, or three gigs. And then after that, you're kind of settled. Right. Now, how do you – I'm sorry, ahead. go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say – I was going to say one thing. Uh, I don't know if you go through this, but, you know, once you get to like your like your 25th, 30th show, there's a, there's a point in that show where all of a sudden I'm playing – and you know, like when you're driving somewhere and you've just gone 50 miles and you don't even remember what you did. Right. I, I, I'm playing and all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, part of my brain's playing the show. The other part is saying, you know, maybe after the show, I'm going to get a burger. Right. And I'll get a, <laughs> you know, because you've played this show so many times. Right. That it, it, people might find that pretty strange, but you know, your brain is still playing the show and you're into it, but there's another part that can do something else. Right. As you can drive a hundred miles and say, I don't even remember where I've just passed or what state I went through. Exactly. That's what that's what happens on my shows anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I can relate. That's crazy. It's yeah. crazy, but that's it, it's true. So yeah. when when you're when you're doing these types of things, does your gear change over the years, or have you had? Is, is there a certain expectation they have that kind of constricts you to what you can mess around with, or how, how does that all work? Um, usually every year something will change if, if it's not my amp and it's a guitar. This year I'm actually switching uh, from doing my Strat, which I always did, to my – it's called a Godin DS1. It's a Daryl Sturmer Yeah, they make guitar. good stuff. I saw that. Yeah, 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 cool. And, you know, and it just works for me, so I'm going to bring two of those out. Uh, we're going to play some acoustic guitar. My amp's changing too. I, I'm looking at one right now. It, I'm, I'm using a Mesa Boogie Badlander. Yes, and it's it, there. So I'm, I'm going to use two uh, 100 heads, Badlander heads. This is like Mesa's newest newest amp, and I have kind of a, a soft endorsement with them, you know, where they you know, they give you the amps for like at their factory cost and right, right, right. It, you know, it's really nice. It's really I've I've been using Mesa boogies a long, long, long time. Right, but I finally had to change. Uh, there's I had these two old um, Mark ones, which oh, I yeah. love. But, you know, there's getting getting to a point where, you know, they're starting to break down every once in a while. I've had them forever. And I, I changed them to, to these Badlanders, and they're really nice. And, you know, so that's what I, that's what I did. And, and, and uh, so do you – are you – I was just talking about this with Sean Hinton the other day about how the fact, you know, he does his gig with Mary J. Blige. There's no – stage volume at all how about with with genesis or phil do you are you able to run the amps a little bit so you can hear them on stage or is it all through ear goggles at this well point? we use ears but there is stage volume um i i like having stage volume i like feeling that amp the, the air moving yes uh and i i play bass too so i have a bass amp and i play i have uh, bass pedals up there and those things are blaring <laughs> you know and actually the soundman soundman doesn't have any problem with this he says no just turn it to the level you want and then we'll work with it there and i do use in-ear monitors do i like in-ear monitors not really i 
I love just when I play with my band, I never use in your in your monitors. And I, I love just hearing, but the stage is so huge. There's no way we could do it without it. Right. You know, so I, it sounds great in there, but it's not as powerful. I feel a little isolated. Yeah. But they're really good in your monitor they're called uh, Jerry Harvey uh, in ears, uh, JH. And um, they're as good as you can be. But I mean, but I, and I, Sometimes I like to use ones that have a little hole in it where you can hear a little bit of the ambience. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have to say that I kind of miss the audience sometimes because they are screaming and whistling when you walk out there. And in in, in your monitors, it's not that loud. Right. So, so, But I like to get a little. So what we do is we also have uh, microphones that have some of the ambient sound from the audience and from the PA come through there. Nice. That, That makes a big difference. Because you feel like you're playing live. Right, 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 right. Not you on get, a radio. You can kind of get the best of all worlds a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you do that. So of those shows that you're doing, I mean, is is are there parts of it that are improvised and off the cuff that are like, okay, everything is scripted except for these little sections here, things kind of go off? Or is it just like, no, 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 it's it's this way every time? It's pretty much scripted. Uh, okay. I'd say 90, 98%, 99% scripted. There might be a couple of moments. We're going to, in this next tour, there's going to be a little section in the middle where we're going to break down to acoustic. Okay. And so uh, that may, a couple of those songs may run on a little longer. I, I have a little acoustic guitar solo on a song called That's All. And, you know, I, I could go on a little longer if I wanted. I probably won't. <laughs> Got it. Probably stick to the three times around, you know, because because there's so much lighting cues and things like that. It's kind of hard to, like, change that. But sure. I, you know, it's one of these odd things that I never feel bored. I've you could play a song a hundred times. And I, there's there's something about each song that has something that you find that you really sure. enjoy playing. Somebody asked me, are you sick of playing in the air tonight with Phil Collins? You know, the big classic. Right. Hit. I'm not. It's still my favorite song to play, and I don't know why. It just feels good. And when the audience is waiting for the big drum fill, right? That does every. They have their hands up in here, and they go. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Sometimes yep. they do it early, and they're wrong. You know? <laughs> but it's it's always exciting. It's always an exciting moment, you know. So you know, I find something in each song that even if I played it 150 times, it doesn't matter. Right. And that's, you know, that's the joy of playing music. I mean, it's yeah. the, that part never gets old. No, it doesn't. It doesn't really get that old. And it's a, it's such a great job. You know, I mean, it's a career, it's a job. I've never had another job in my whole life. I, I taught guitar when I was 16 and I've been playing professionally since I was 16, you know, playing in bands. And then finally, when I got to playing in uh, bands outside of Milwaukee, I was 22 years old. So, right, right. You know, so when you first started playing, um, what kind of stuff were you into? <laughs> when I first started, well, I, I started playing guitar when I was 11 because my brother already played. He's two and a half years older than me. So you're always like into your, your brother's the coolest guy. He's like Elvis or something. Right. And he sang and played guitar. So I wanted to do the same thing. But I, I passed him up on the guitar. He just and then he, he switched over to playing bass. Right. And but he could sing and play bass and. And in the early days, I had my little band, he had his band, but then we started getting together, playing together, and we had put together a Milwaukee band called Sweet Bottom. Right. And that we went on for some years with Sweet Bottom until one night, uh, Frank Zappa's band came into the bullring where we were, Sardino's bullring. Yes. We were playing there for about two and a half years, five nights a week. It was a great gig because you could play what you wanted and you had an audience almost every night and uh they came in town and sat in with us and all of a sudden there's this keyboard player named george duke who was right. fantastic he uh liked my playing i was a 20 year one year old kid and i was gonna take my guitar and put it down because people were changing off like chester thompson played drums ralph humphreys played drums and I, I started putting my guitar down he said where are you going kid i went uh i thought maybe someone else wants to play he said no you stay up here so I stayed up there, and he's the one who introduced me to Jean-Luc Ponty, yeah, yeah, the great French jazz violinist. And I went out in L.A. and rehearsed for John. I auditioned with Jean-Luc Ponty and got the gig. So I was went on the road with him for three years, did three albums, and 
The rest is history. The rest is history. So did you were you a student of George Pritchett back in the day? Yeah. Well, I, I when I was I started when I was 11, I started playing all that. You know, I, I was into the ventures. Right. Uh, I was into all those kind of bands and the, the shadows from England and all this. I loved all that instrumental stuff. And then I but all of a sudden when I was 15, I said, I, I better get take lessons because it's one of those things you think you should do. Right. And maybe I should learn how to read, too. Right, I, could, right, right. I could read trumpet because I had played since I was in third grade in concert band playing trumpet. And I played that through high school, too. But um, I started taking I went on the crown music on Kinnikinnick. Yep. And um, I heard this great jazz jazz guitar player, George Bush, and I started taking lessons with him. And I I, I probably took lessons for about a year. He was quite a character, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, he was a character. I have to say, though, I learned a lot from him, and uh, he was great to me, you know. But I, I would rather say, go down the street and get me a tea, an iced tea. <laughs> I'd go get him an iced tea. I felt like I was in Karate Kid, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but, I, you know, I learned that he made me do things that I wouldn't probably have done uh, on the guitarist, chordal things and Sure. And then he, me, he said, let's take a song, let's take Moon River and play it all, play all the melody with chords and then play right. it. Now play a solo on top, you know, stuff like that. It was really, yeah. it made me read. I'm not a great reader today, but I can read charts and I can write charts and things like that. But I'm, I'm not a good sight reader. I've never been. I think guitar is just so hard. <laughs> to <Yes. play. laughs> well, a trumpet was so easy to play one note at a time, and go, but with a guitar, if it's if there's an F, it also you could start it here, you could start it here, every different right. position. I don't know where so, to start, and I get you got to read so far ahead, you know. So right, I, I'm with I, you. I understand. Yeah. So when you were in high school, what what kind of stuff was your? Were, were you attracted to jazz, or what? What was kind of your vision at that point, or were you just like loved to play play a bunch of different stuff? Well, I, I, I like to play a bunch, of, but but I was attracted to jazz when I was about fifteen because all of a sudden I realized I don't know I don't know where those notes are coming from. Right. <laughs> what, right. What is he playing? So I, that's not the blues scale. That's right. <laughs> I was doing Michael Bloomfield stuff, Elvin Bishop, and right. all those guys, BB King, and and I, which I loved, but they were these jazz guys were playing notes out of out of nowhere. Where, where did that come from? Right, and I had I had this album by Joe Pass called Joe Pass plays the Rolling Stones. Ah, I have and, never and, heard that one. Yeah, and, and I actually looked it up recently because it's out of print. <laughs> but that got me into jazz because he was playing Stones songs that I knew, but in a jazz form. And I thought, wow! So I would take the record and I because he'd play something fast, so I'd slow the record down. Dun, 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 you know, like that. Right, 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 right. And I'd learn it, and that, and then speed it up and try to play it, and which I couldn't always. But um, that's how I got into jazz because of Joe Pass. Then I got into West Montgomery, uh, Howard Roberts, Kenny Burrell, yeah. all these great guys. And uh, but then all of a sudden, I heard a record with John McLaughlin, and I went, "What? Right? What's that? It's called Inner Mounting Flame. Yep. It's just this amazing thing." And I went, "Oh my God, that's what I really like." Because it's like jazz rock combined, you know, right. the real beginning of fusion, if you want to say. And I, I love that. So that's if, if I'd say anything, that's sort of where I'm at. I'm in between jazz and rock. I'm not one way or another. Absolutely. And you, you know, you, your chops, I mean, because back then, I mean, you, I mean, of course, you still have them today, but I mean, at not that like time, that. <laughs> the, 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 there wasn't, a, you know, a whole lot of guys like you, you speak about John McLaughlin, but, you know, you can do all that stuff. You know what I mean? I, I, those uh, early things with uh, uh, Jean Luponti and then oh, Gina yeah. Vanelli. I mean, there's some, there's some scalding activities <laughs> going on. Yeah, there. I used to be, I used to be able to play that. So. <laughs> It's different now, but it's funny. I mean, at that time, you just had no fear, you know. You right. Kind of went for it, you know. And when you're playing with Jean-Luc, you wrote some lines that are really hard to play. Right. I don't know if I could play them today. I, I heard a song called New Country that I did. Uh, it, it was on the acoustic guitar. And there's a line in there that I know I can't play today. But I don't know how I did it back then when I was 23 years old. <laughs> but, you I was you just did it. I had to. I was. I, if I couldn't do this, he could fire me. 
you know. Right. <laughs> so. so describe to us the kind of the segue between, you know, you're doing kind of these preeminent jazz rock gigs to, to going with Phil and, and how that all kind of transitioned. Yeah, well, what it did is uh, I had done three years with Jean-Luc Pani and three albums, all the tours. And then, but he was on this hiatus. There was no, nothing coming up. And a, a bass player named Alfonso Johnson, he was oh, yeah. a bass player of a weather report before right. Johnson. And he auditioned for for Genesis because they were their their guitarist Steve Hackett left. They needed a guy that could play guitar and bass because Mike was going to play guitar and bass a little bit more guitar than usual. And Alfonso is a great bass player, but he's not much of a guitar player, so he didn't get the gig. But he recommended me. Uh-huh. And I went, wow, because they apparently this is what they told me. They auditioned a lot of people in England like 20 guys. Then they had a list of people in America, a list of uh, five. I recognized two other names on this list later on, I found out. And uh, they flew me to New York and um, put me up at the Plaza Hotel. And uh, they gave me, a, oh, they, before that, they sent me a cassette. Remember those? Oh, exactly. <laughs> a cassette with five songs in it. And two were from the newest album called And Then There Were Three. One song was called on the on the tape was called Calypso, but it's really Follow You, Follow Me. But that okay. was a working time. And then another one is called Five Eight, because it's in Five Eight, but it's called Down and Out. And then three older songs from previous albums. So I learned those songs and I also went out and bought Genesis Records just to get more of an idea. And it was freaky because sometimes I couldn't tell if it was a synthesizer playing or it was a guitar. Steve had all these great sounds that match the keyboard and so i was so i was so i just learned them i didn't know what they were but i would just learn them so when i came to audition i was the first of the five guys that were auditioning and it was 10 o'clock in the morning and i got there and i i thought the band was going to be that was just mike rutherford ah interesting and so but he had monitors set up a cassette player with those tapes and then we sat down to talk for a while and then i played along with the tape and we played about two minutes of a song and he'd stop it. He'd go, let's go ahead. Let's go fast forward. And we played the next song. We played it. We went through four of the five songs and Mike says, I think you're the one. And I went, really? Okay. So we talked some more and he says, here's what I'll do. He says, I'll ring you at the plaza at five o'clock and we'll run through the songs that you should learn for the rehearsals. This was December, 1977. And rehearsals were going to start uh, February of 78. So um, I um, went back to my room and I called my wife and I said, um, I think I have the gig, but I'm not really sure. You know, I'm not sure I have the gig. And I don't even, I don't know. Do you think I should do it? She goes, do it. <laughs> you know, I, I was like the second fiddle to Jean-Luc Ponty. You know, I had all the guitar solos. In Genesis, you didn't know what you were going to have. I didn't know how great it was. You know, I, I just thought, well, it's an English rock band. This might last a year. Right. And uh, anyway, so Mike called me at 6 p.m. I thought I didn't have the gig because at 5 o'clock he didn't call me. So he rung me up and he says, I'll come over to your room and uh, you know, come over to my room and we'll run through the list of stuff and I'll play you some songs we have to do. So I went over to his room and we went through the whole list of stuff. And it was a lot. It was like 26 songs, but I didn't know that they were going to do medleys. And I thought, God, I got to learn 26 songs. Okay. And what happened was I said to him at the end, I said, okay, I recognized a couple names on here and they're good guitar players. Uh, what is it about me? that He said, you're the only guy that came prepared and you knew the songs. I went, really? He said, yeah. One of the guys said, so uh, what key is this song? And the other guy said, another guy said, what style of music is it? And I'm thinking like, this is Genesis. I mean, you're not going to prepare for this. This, right. is, this could be a really a big deal. <laughs> what, right. You know, it was. But, and he said, no, you, you came prepared. And, and obviously you could play this stuff, but you came prepared. Him and I got along very well right away. And that's how that all began. And then the next thing you know, I was in England in February rehearsing with these guys. It was amazing. That's insane. And, and the fact that it has lasted I know all these many years is is unbelievable. I mean, it really is a it's a testament to 
I mean, obviously, your ability to do the gig and get along with these guys and, and their ability and just cumulatively the ability of that band to stay relevant and and active for all of these years, it's, it's uh, well, obviously, it's singular, if we're honest. You know? <laughs> well, it's uh, what's also amazing is that after the first tour, we were in Japan uh it was December and we were in Japan and I, and I said to Mike Rutherford, it was getting down to our last couple of gigs. I said, when, when do you think the next tour is going to be? He says, I don't know. We never plan. This may be the last. I have no idea. I went, Oh my God, this will be the last tour. It could, you know, they, they don't think that far ahead at that, at that point. And, um, and what I did is I flew back. I was living in Los Angeles in Santa Monica then with my wife. Uh, actually, we weren't married yet. We were living in sin. Yes. And uh, I went back because we were going to get married December 11 in 78. And I was, this was like December 5th. And I'm flying back to LA. I, yeah, LA. And she's in Milwaukee because we're going to get m- m- married in Milwaukee. And I just called up my friend, uh, Mark Cranny, who is this great drummer that I worked with in Jean Luc Ponty. And he was playing with Gino Vanelli. And, and he played on this great album called Brother to Brother. It's a great right. album. And I call and I say, I'm just kind of, I'm in town for about three days, and then I'm going to go to Milwaukee and get married, blah, blah, blah. And he says, are you going to play with Genesis next year? I said, well, they're for sure taking off the next year because Mike's wife and Tony's wife are having babies. So there's no touring plan. He says, well, Gino's looking for a guitarist. I went, oh. And he says, let me call Gino if you want to do it, right? I go, yeah, sure. <laughs> I like Gino Vanelli. I thought it was sure. excellent. So he called up Gino Vanelli, and Gino calls me and says, uh, uh, I'm, I'm auditioning four guys to- tomorrow if you want to come. And I went, oh, yeah. I went out and bought the Brother to Brother album <laughs> and learned the Brother to Brother album. And then the next day I went on, down to the audition, and it was four guys. And we were all plugged in, standing there. And we were going to do a song called Appaloosa. And See, Gina would say, when I when I want you to comp, I'll just do two fingers and point at you, and I want you to solo. So there'd be like, he'd be pointing to different guys, and I'd be comping, and this guy would be soloing, and then he'd have that guy do it. It was kind of an odd odd kind of right. way to do an audition, because usually you do it privately. Exactly. And we're all standing there going, oh, God. And I remember one of the other guys was a pretty good player. And uh, and all of a sudden, the, the manager came up to me after the audition and said, come with me, and he says, Gino likes your playing, blah, blah. So I ended up touring with Gino Vanelli. After that, I, <laughs> I went back to Milwaukee, got married, and started rehearsal with Gino Vanelli in February of 1979. And then Wild. doing the Gino Vanelli tour. That doesn't happen today, that kind right. of stuff. That was back then in the 70s and maybe 80s. But so, and that was a great, and the band was great. I mean, they were a terrific, terrific group. Um, the, the keyboard player one of the there was three keyboard players joey vanelli and uh, uh bill myers and brad cole and brad cole is the i got him into the phil collins band in 1990 i shouldn't say that i i recommended him and he auditioned and got him. sure well that was a different era where, where pop bands i mean the the musician, not that's not the same now, but it, it's it's just different that bands could really play and then were allowed to really play right Oh, absolutely. It was a great, and that was a great gig. And the band was super, I mean, we even played Milwaukee. We played at the Milwaukee Auditorium. Yes. And and at that time, I think it was like, uh, I don't know, seven, I don't know many, how many thousands of people, but the, the tour wasn't super successful because Gino went on tour a little late. The, the album went platinum brother to brother. But we went on tour like six months later when, when it was already dying out. And so we, sometimes we'd play to a, uh, an arena of five that could hold maybe ten to 12,000, but we were playing to 5,000 people or 4,000. To me, that would be great. I'd love to play that, that many people right. in my band. But to him, that wasn't a success, you know. So anyway, so I did that for that uh, half a year or whatever it was and then came back to Genesis in 1980 and they had another tour planned. But then what happened is... Phil Collins had a song on a tape and he says, I want you to hear this song. We were rehearsing with Genesis in 1980 and, and he brings me out to his car and he puts on this song and it's in the air tonight. It's the demo. Right. And I'm listening to this and I didn't even know he could write anything because Mike and Tony were doing all the bulk of writing. It used to be Peter Gabriel. And, 
And if, if Phil was a part of the writing, it was, you know, just as a co-writer. Right. It's the first time that Phil ever wrote a song by himself, as far as what I knew. And I thought, wow, it's really a great song. It, it'll be a nice album song. I didn't know it would be a single. And then what happened is uh, in, in December of 1980, he decided to go do a solo album called Face Value. And that's what we did. We did that album in 1980 and it came out in 81. And again, the rest is history. He's a big Yeah, fan. absolutely. <laughs> that was a great song to play on. That was, I mean, we did the whole album, but that was the big hit. Now, did you have any inkling that it was going to be what it was what, as you were doing it? You're like, well, there's something going on here. But, or Well, like I said, I thought it would be a good album song. You know, like one of the deep cuts. Right. You know, because pop was so different then. You know, it was, uh, things were very poppy and, um, in 1980, 81. You know, things were starting to get real synthy. Right. <laughs> something, something like that. And, uh, uh, no, I, I didn't know it would be a big hit. Although when the drunk fill came in, it was like, holy smoke. That's right, right. a great moment, but I didn't know it would be a big single. Because it was a long song. It took about three minutes before the drums before the drum fill came in. So what, what radio station was waiting that long for something to happen? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Not that it wasn't happening before that. It was very cool and very ethereal. But then, right. then that just changes everything. So he kind of let you have a free canvas to to do all that atmospheric stuff that you were doing. Did he have an idea of what he wanted you to do, or you're just like, hey, here's the tune. What do you got? The the thing that he had me do that he recommended is that in the beginning of the song, oh, but yeah, 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 all yeah. the little little atmosphere things I just came up with, and he picked the ones he liked, and you know, you did about three or four takes of them, sure, and then he just picked up ones he really liked to hear, and that that's how that happened. How awesome is that? That was played on, you, you'll find this, I don't know if, remember there was a place called West Alice Music. Um, yes. And they used to sell guitars and one of them was called SunTech. It was a SunTech guitar. That's what that is. It's like a Strat kind of looking guitar with some, I think it had a double coil pickup as well as single coils. But anyway, I did that and somebody, somebody sent me uh, on Facebook that they bought that guitar. It's, oh, no I, I had sold it somewhere down the line, and they showed me the picture of it. That's the that's the in the air tonight guitar. Unbelievable. Yeah. So then, did did Phil end up touring right away, or was it just like the record came out and then it was back to Genesis, or or how did that all work? Um, I think. Oh, I think. Um, did we do a tour on that one? I can't remember if we waited till the second album and then go on a tour. I. <sighs> I don't. I, I think we must have toured with that album, but you know, I remember. Remember that? Uh, well, of course, you probably remember. <laughs> I, I, I remember. I got this record. Uh, I think it was it nineteen eighty three, the Secret Policeman's Ball. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it was just you and Phil, but Clapton and Jeff Beck played together, and like Sting was on it. Do you remember yeah. any of the? Yeah, yeah. Circumstances of that particular yeah. gig? Yeah, like you said, that was an eighty three. We did. I, I think I even played banjo on something. Uh, Maybe not on that, that thing, but we did a song called The Roof is Leaking, and we did In the Air Tonight. Those are the two songs that we did. But I remember just sitting back, and not only was it so exciting to see Clapton and Jeff Beck and, and Sting, all, all the guys from Monty Python. Monty Python, that's oh, it, exactly. Oh, God. And I, I just became such a fan of British humor at that point. Because they were all the top guys, you know, Billy Connolly. Right. And all these guys. I mean, Yeah. That was a lot of fun. The Secret Policeman's Other Ball. That's right. Because <laughs> it, it was the second one, apparently. We did, we did the second one. Yeah, it was great. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, Bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Well, talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, that I, I, I don't think Phil Collins really, maybe he does get credit. I, I, I don't think he gets enough credit as a great drummer. 
but his feel and just the sound of his drums, to me, I mean, especially, you know, just the stuff he, of course, with Genesis, but even the stuff he did with Robert Plant. I mean, the, the his drumming is fantastic. Yeah, uh, and we did an album with uh, one of the singers from ABBA. It, yep. Her name is Frida, and the drums on there are just unbelievable. There's a song called I Know There's Something Going On, and it's, it's classic Phil on drums, real gated you know, no symbols. That that's right. Because that, he did that on the Peter Gabriel album, uh, one of Peter Gabriel's album. That's how that all began. They decided between the Steve Lilly White, the producer, Hugh Patchum, the engineer, Peter and um, Phil decided we don't. We're gonna have real gated sound, but we can't have symbols because it won't work. So the whole album's done without symbols, and that became kind of Phil's signature. And um, I, I I agree with you. I think the same thing. He's one of the greatest drummers to play with. It's just the pocket is so there, and you don't know why. And one time when um, Brad Cole was coming to play with us for the first time, he's the keyboard player from the Gino Vanelli band, and he was a friend of mine, and he did my first record. And he came, and all of a sudden, Phil was showing our drummer, Ricky Lawson. Uh, we didn't have Chester on this tour. We had Ricky Lawson, and he was showing him something, how to play something. No, no, I guess we did have Chester at this point. But uh, he was showing him how to play something. It was Easy Lover, the song Easy Lover. Yeah. And it, the drums are a real classic thing. So he wanted specific things to be played. And he played it live. He was sitting there playing it. And Brad Cole looks over at me and says, he really sounds like that. That, <laughs> that is how he sounds. Even without right. all the gating and all the, it just sounds like Phil Collins. You know, it's yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. when you're when you're around a musician like like say David Sanborn on sax. When he plays sax, you know it's him. Right. You know, you know certain guitar players. You know that's it. it's it's an amazing thing. Drums, you think how could you sound any different? They're just drums. Well, they sound different. And Absolutely. The way he plays them, the pocket is just perfect. Leland Sklar, our bass player, always says that's his favorite drummer ever that he played with, and he's played Wild. with great great drummers. You know, uh, and he. But he said, Phil is just a natural because he can't, you know, Phil can't read music. I was, you know, there was a tour that we did. It was called the Big Band, the Phil Collins Big Band. We, we did all this big band music, uh, Genesis and Phil Collins songs done in a jazzy kind of way. There's even an album called Hot Night in Paris. It's Phil Collins Big Band. And we did this album. But when we were doing the rehearsals, Phil can't read music. All Everybody else in the horns are great readers. I'm a fair reader. So I can play the song probably the first time. But Phil, is, what he did is he had another drummer, sort of like what Buddy Rich did, you know, had another drummer play the stuff first and record it. And then Phil would learn it off of there and play it his way. Got it. So we're playing. And we're on about the third day and Phil goes, damn it, I got it. I can't, I got to get this. And he would write out chat charts for himself that made no sense to us. Like, sure. diddly, 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 bash. And he'd write <laughs> things like that. Diddly, 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 bash. So, and all of a sudden, our trumpet player, Harry Kim, comes up to us and says, just think how well your career could have gone if you had learned how to read music. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how, how perfect that is. <laughs> it probably wouldn't have been the same at all if he knew how to read music. I'm not saying you shouldn't read music. Right. But some just... people... West, right. Montgomery, West Montgomery couldn't read music. Yep. George you know, Benson can't read music. Yeah, it's, I didn't even know that. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. What a great player. And Buddy Rich couldn't read music. You know, I mean, there's something that's very unique about the people who, do, who don't, you know. Right. And then there's people like, I can hack. I'm like a music reader hack. I'm not that good. But I can do it. So maybe if I would have not done it, I would be even better. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of one of those funny things. I was um, I was conversing with um, with Lukather when he was in town, and we were shooting the breeze, and I and I I, I had to know about the session thing because you know you always hear about these guys that do all the sessions, like you know they could probably read crumbs on a piece of paper. You know what I mean? 
and, and, and I was so gratified to hear him say, he's like, yeah, I can read a chord chart, but I'm a texture guy. So they bring me in. They want me to add the secret sauce. There were guys like Tommy Tedesco and those yeah. guys that could read anything, yeah. but weren't necessarily the stylistic guys that they wanted for the <laughs> secret sauce. And so it was, That's right. it was, it was good to hear that. I, I know. I know. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. I wish I could read better. I really wish I could, but I'm not going to take the time now and do it. Right. None of the guys in Genesis read and they write this amazing music and it doesn't seem to be a problem for them. So I, right. Exactly. No it is what it is. Doggone it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So what was it like for you to be all of a sudden you're in the situation where you're just interacting with like the rock and roll royalty, especially the English rock and roll royalty, or, or was it kind of, because by the time, you know, with your musical tastes being more of kind of in the jazz world, was right. it not like, was it not that big of a deal for you? Just like, oh, these are just these guys. No, it, <laughs> well, you know, it, it took a while, it took an adjustment period. When I first got there, the way they play certain songs was very English, the way they approached it. And I, and I tended to swing it a little bit and right. it sounded wrong. I'd pl be playing a part and I got, I got to stiffen this up a little bit. I got to <laughs> play a little more, you know. And, but see, the thing is, Phil is also very much into American music. Phil had a band called Brand X, which was fusion band. Right. So he tended to lean a little bit that way or lean a little bit the way that I leaned. Mike and Tony not. So, but what I did is I had to adjust to their way of playing things. And, and I got it finally, but it, it took a little while. And also I had to play bass. So when I started with that band, um, I was playing bass on about five songs. I swear it took me about five years to really be a bass player because, oh yeah, I know the notes. I know all that stuff. But I, when I finally felt like a bass player, it, it was five years later where I, I could really play bass now. I did some things with my fingers, but a lot of pick, but it wasn't about that. It was about just where that bass lies with the kick drum and, you know, all that stuff. Sure. Yeah. So it took a while. So, it, you know, being an American in, in that band, it's it's almost like uh, it's almost like I had to adjust to their culture. I got you and their musical cu culture, and it's a and it was really a fine one, and it was really amazing. So and you know to fill to have to fill Steve Hackett's shoes was a big deal because right. people loved him, and he, you see like on YouTube like oh, Sturmer can't shine his shoes stuff like that. You, you know you, you're always going to get that. You're always, you know, you're always going to be the new guy and the guy that's sure. as good as the guy that was there. But Steve and I have no problem with each other. We enjoy right. each other. I've had discussions with him. I think he's a great player. He's very innovative. And so and, and if you're going to blame anybody, blame Mike, Tony and Phil for hiring me. <laughs> Not, <being laughs> you know, if you think they're idiots, that's say it to them. But anyway, no, it, it's one of those things that uh, I find amusing. Then you see people getting in fights on online, you know, oh, I think Sturmer can play. I, I really like the way he plays Firth the Fifth, all these songs and all these. It's really amazing to hear that. And um, the but, super fans going at it on, yeah, on online. It really, honestly, and I truthfully, it doesn't bother me that much. It bothers my daughter. <laughs> you know, ah. she goes, can you believe what they're saying about you? I don't, I said, don't. They're going to say that about, the, they said that about Ron Wood. They say that about all the- Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's no escape. But how, so how much time did you spend over there in England? And it was all, I mean, I, I know that, you know, people are like, well, the Genesis guys probably hang out with the Zeppelin guys and this, <laughs> that, that. So were you, were you kind of amongst like socially hanging out with these, these people that were like rock and roll legends? And how was that on the, well, on the mind? Well, uh, I would spend a lot of time there because sometimes we'd rehearse for six weeks just in England. Then we go on a British tour. But a lot of times, like on the weekend or something, Mike Rutherford would say, hey, we're going to come to a party with me. I can, I can only stay a couple of times, which I was like going, wow. We were at this party, and all of a sudden, we're sitting there, and we walk in this room, and there's two people sitting there, a guy and a girl. And Mike sits down. He, he knows him, and we're sitting down. It was Ringo <laughs> and Barbara Bach, his wife. And I'm going, what's wrong with this picture? I'm sitting with Ringo, and I'm from right. Milwaukee. <laughs> and, and another time we 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 went to a party uh, and it was uh, Stuart Copeland's birthday and we all a lot of us went up on stage and did the jam thing and there's Stuart playing drums and Sting and I'm going God this is amazing again right. I'm I'm right. out of Milwaukee and I'm getting to play with these guys and 
every once in a while, something like that would happen. And it's just, uh, but, you know, uh, Phil's, his second wedding, his second marriage, uh, we were at this, uh, everybody was supposed to wear 50s clothes. So we all looked really bad, you know, <laughs> and, we're, and we had a jam thing. And this is not recorded. It wasn't uh, taped. It wasn't anything, but it was um, Phil on drums, Eric Clapton on guitar, me on, I'll say second guitar. And uh, Robert Plant singing, Gary Brooker from Procol Harum was playing yep. keyboards, and Mike Rutherford was playing bass. And I'm going, wow, this is great. And when it, we would do some kind of bluesy stuff, and, and that's when I really appreciated Eric Clapton, his bluesy. Well, I was like, wow, okay, I get it. Right. <laughs> I mean, I always liked him anyway, but now I'm on the stage with him, and he's playing something fairly simple, but it sounded right. great. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. I have to do something else. <laughs> sure, I got you. Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. Can't, I can't match that. That's too good. <laughs> anyway, it was a lot of fun. And right after that, uh, we were playing all these kind of shuffle kind of songs. Robert Plant, right after that, put out a thing called the Honey Drippers. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And that's the stuff we were kind of doing. So that was kind of like the beginning of that. And 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 Peter Gable was there. and Stephen Bishop, the singer-songwriter, yep. did some stuff. And, you know, it's it's just great. And I, I, I love being part of that. It was it was exciting. Well, you know, what's, what's interesting is when you mentioned, you know, here's this guy from Milwaukee. So when, when, were, you, when were you in L.A. and when did you decide to come back and live in Milwaukee after uh, that? Okay. Uh, I first moved there in uh, – my wife and I moved there in 1977 – because Jean-Luc Ponty, or 76, actually, uh, because I was always rehearsing with Jean-Luc and he had to fly me there. Everybody else was living in L.A. except me. So we decided, let's let's move to L.A. So we moved to a small apartment in uh, Santa Monica, one room furnished. You know what right. furnished means? It's really <laughs> awful, flat, everything, no pictures on the walls. So when I was working, so I was working with, Jean, uh, with Jean-Luc Ponty at that point. And then, then I, w- I got with Genesis, and so in about 1981, we had our first daughter, and it was January 30th. And I remember calling up Phil. I was at Santa Monica Hospital, and I said, by the way, Phil, happy birthday. He goes, oh, hey, you don't have to call. Remember in those days, when you made a phone call, it was expensive right, to another country. So I, he oh, you don't have to call me. Oh, well, thank you. And I said, well, one other thing. I had a daughter today also on your birthday. <laughs> So, so he, he was he had turned 30 and I just had a uh, my first my first daughter. So four months later, we decided let's move back to Milwaukee because we found that we were always going back and forth to Milwaukee when it was holidays, you know, like Christmas or Thanksgiving. Her parents lived in Cleveland. My parents lived in Milwaukee, my brother, my sister, all that. So we decided to move back to Milwaukee. And I said to myself, I wonder if this will work. Maybe this is going to be the bet, the worst move I've ever made. But we moved back. So my daughter was four months old. We drove across the country with her, and she was a great. Oh, man. She was great, though, the whole time. So she was one of those babies that gave you no trouble. So we moved back to Milwaukee, bought our first house on 57th and Morgan. Okay. On the southwest side. And, yep. And uh, that's where we had our first house. And um the rest is history. We stayed. The rest is history. <laughs> we stayed. We stayed, and I've never regretted that move. Because I, I talked to Mike Rutherford at Genesis. I said, does it matter that if I live in Milwaukee or LA? He says, no, it's actually a shorter plane flight. So Yes. So it's, a, it's eight hours instead of 11 hours. So it actually turned out to be good. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's, um, you know, uh, uh, obviously, you know, I've traveled a lot from here as well. And uh you, you have people like, well, why do you live in Milwaukee? It's like, well, when you can make your living, you know, I don't actually make my living in Milwaukee. I right. just live there. And as a place to live, it's great, especially raising kids and in yep. the whole nine yards. And uh, but it, it is an interesting thing, both the stigma of what other people perceive that are not here, but also the same token of when you live here, there's they, such a as much as it's a great town with great people and so on and so forth, there's. There's almost like I'm, I'm sure it's different from you, but it's it's it, at some point you know you talk to people like what's wrong with you that you're living here? <laughs> no, I, I've had that. I, I, I've had that a lot. Wait a minute, you live in because somebody will say, "Are you Daryl Sturmer?" I go, "Yeah." He goes, 
oh, cool. Where, where, where are you living? Are you just visiting here? And I said, no, I live here. Why are you living here? And it's, it's what you said. I travel. I do a lot of things outside of Milwaukee. And when I come back here, it's such a nice place to come into that airport that's right. chaotic. And, yep. and, you know, even though there's such thing as, uh, you know, um, traffic jams every once in a while, it's not like Chicago. It's not like right. New York. It's not like, and I remember L.A., even back then when I lived there, it was bad. So it's, it's a nice place to kind of go, I'm home now. Okay. This Absolutely. Is and my kids, you know, I have two, I had two daughters and they went to a nice public school here. I, I live in Whitefish Bay and they went to that school system, which felt like a private school because it was right. You pay high taxes, but you're paying high taxes for good schooling and a safe area and blah, blah. Um, so no, I've never regretted it. Now I have three granddaughters. <laughs> Wild. I know. I know. <laughs> rock star, you know. I, I, I hate when people call me, what's it like being a rock star? I, I don't, I'm not a rock star. I work with one, but I'm not one. You know, that <laughs> I just, I'm a side man. You know, you know, my, my position in, in Genesis is kind of interesting because a lot of people say, what do you mean you're not a member? I said, well, Mike, Tony and Phil own the band and they hire me and Chester Thompson on drums. And, and in this case, it's going to be Nick. Phil Collins in an interview said, had the best line for me. He said, he's a permanent part-time temporary member. <laughs> and I've been a permanent part-time temporary member for 42 years. So, Which is unprecedented, if we're <laughs> yeah, it was, it's, it's pretty. I love that title. That was so perfect. They, they don't want another person involved with their band. They did it with Peter and Steve Hackett. Then when Peter left, then it was the four of them. And then when Steve Hackett left, it's it's uh, three of them, so they're right. going to keep it that way. It's less complicated. I just Absolutely. do the touring. Yeah, I don't play on the albums, but I play on all the Phil Collins records, so I'm happy. You know, I yeah, yeah. play all those things, and yeah. It's, it's, well, talk a little bit about your your band and how that's changed over your your own personal stuff that you do. Yeah, <laughs> well, as you know, the last year and a half, no one's worked. Right. And uh, but um, yeah, I have my band. What I do with my group is, uh, you know, I have a four-piece or a five-piece or a, or a duo. It, it's sort of me and my keyboard player, Kostia, sometimes do things by ourselves, sometimes right. with the full band, with five of us. I have three singers that I work with. Depends on who's available. I have Woody Mankowski as yep. a singer. Uh, you know, I have Eric Anderson. I have Joe Richter. So I have these three guys that I kind of go between. And, uh, and I have Eric Hervey on bass. And Alan Arbor on drums and Kosti, of course, on keyboards. So what we do is half the music is Genesis music and, half, and Phil Collins and half the music is my stuff. My stuff is all instrumental. It's sort of more in that heavy rock fusion kind of vein, a little bit right. of that. And But I approach the Genesis songs a little differently, but not so different that it, you know, you know what song it is. You know? right. And, and uh, I, I put my flavor into it. There's obviously more guitar. Yes. <laughs> There's a solo, and you know, which may may not be on the original. Anyway, so that's what that's what I do, and it's it's great. And I have, I can't wait to get back to that. But there will be a Genesis tour coming up, so it's kind of putting a hold on my band. Well, I, I, that's. Uh... That's going to be a lot of fun. Tell, tell, do you have fun doing? I mean, obviously you have fun doing those tours, but you know, when you're traveling, it's as we all know, it's kind of a double edged sword. But I, I, you're you're traveling in a way that most people don't travel. Am I right? right. Yeah, it, it, I have I have no complaints. I mean, obviously, I, when I was with Jean Luc Pony, that was a different story. You're, a lot of commercial flights and delays and all that kind. Of, but you know, ever since being with Genesis, pretty much after the first couple of years we were not traveling commercial we they always rent a plane for the tour you know it's, it's not you walk on the plane they got food for you you got four or five flight attendants you know it's just like how can i complain about this i also i'll complain but i you know oh, i can't believe they're doing the same food as yesterday you know uh, but, yeah so is there time between the shows or have they spread it out a little bit more like in the past? You know, it used to be probably boom, 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 yeah. boom, boom. You get a couple days between. Do you get to go out and see the cities that you're in? Yes. Or do you not even want to at this point because it's. <laughs> well, it depends. It depends what city. And then uh, what we usually do is usually do two shows and then the next day we travel to the next place. So we could go out that night and hang out 
and then we play the next show. It's usually two nights, night off, two nights, night. That night off is a travel day. So we travel on that day. Uh, you know, and Phil's voice, if, if you start giving him four nights in a row, he's going to burn his voice out. So we're, we try to keep it down the two. Sometimes we'll do three, but that's about it. I remember back in 85, we were in Denver and me and Phil were flying to LA to do the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And we were sitting there and Phil had already done 10 shows in a row oh, good in Lord. 1985. So he was in his 30s. And we went on the Tonight Show and I remember he, he had to do a couple things using falsetto because he, he didn't have his top range there but still he was great you know it's amazing and uh but now that that would be impossible it, to totally impossible we we've lowered some of the keys on the song sure you know i i've known guys like elton john did the same thing everybody does that at a certain point but you Absolutely. know what the songs still work so it doesn't matter Exactly. Yeah, but I hate that I have to lower it on a guitar. <laughs> 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 Boom. But uh, and and then the bass. You know, if if you're doing a song that would normally be an E, now it's down to D. I tune the bass on. I have this little hip shot on it. Sure. Which which. But I can't play a five string. I'm just not gonna. I'm not gonna get into playing a five string. I yeah, I, I can't do it. I, it'll just confuse me. <laughs> I'm a four string guy with a hip shot down to D. Well, let me ask you this. So, uh, have you been watching the Bucks at all? Are you a, are you a basketball fan? Well, I, I I started watching it because they're in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, you, you and me both. You know, it was interesting. I mean, I've I, once they started to get into the the playoffs, then I started to pay attention. We were like, we were listening to it on the radio. We were up north, and we couldn't even get any TV reception, <laughs> so we had this this radio attached to a. Uh, on top of a table, on top of a cooler, on top of a thing of firewood, and then attached to the metal rim of the gutter in order to hear, <laughs> you know. And then I was in. Then I knew the players' names. So now that they're actually in the finals, I've been watching it on uh, yeah on TV, and they finally won last night. Of course, I know. Which was, thank, was glorious. But. I mean, I want them to win, obviously, because I, you know, you want to be proud of your. And you know, to me, because of the pandemic, they could have been number one last year. Right. You know what I mean? I, I remember when, because we were in New York, uh, like I was telling you before, with Genesis in February of 2020. And there was one day that Mike and Tony said, hey, do you want to go to the, let's go to the game. And I was tired that day. I said, nah, I don't want to go. I'm going to go out by myself. I'm kind of, we've been rehearsing six days in a row. And and Phil Phil's really into basketball and his son. Oh, no kidding. So. All of a sudden, in, in the paper the next day, it shows a picture of Mike and Tony saying, and there's Phil down there, and there's Mike and Tony. And I was going to be there, too, but I, I I didn't come. And I said, is this a possible Genesis tour coming up? But where's Daryl uh. Sturmer? I wonder why he's not here. Uh. <laughs> and Tony Banks said to me, what if someone asks me, because he doesn't like to lie about anything. What if they ask me, why am I in New York? I said, tell him you're going. You're going to a funeral. <laughs> just to tell him something. <laughs> you don't have to be honest with this. Just say I'm here for an event. No, right. You know, exactly. Yeah. But uh, anyway, it was in the paper, but I was not there. So because I wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't interested in watching the Knicks play. Right. <laughs> you know, right, if it right, would have right. been Milwaukee and the Knicks, yeah, I would have done it. I would have gone. Instead, and then three days later, we went and saw To Kill a Mockingbird live, uh, ah. which was just. The greatest, you know, I just love seeing it. And it was Ed Harris playing the role because it was after Jeff Daniels had played the role for a couple of years. That was right. like the hardest ticket to get in town. But of course, the perks of Genesis, oh, we'll get you tickets. Boom. Nice. Free. You know, you it, just go, Jesus. It is, a per awesome. it's a, it is a perk thing, isn't it? You know, it's just amazing. You got to live it up. <laughs> Bottom line. I, I had to accept that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I was so into wanting to see that uh, play anyway. So, and, and I'm sure. a big fan of Ed Harris too. So, yeah, he is great. Always, always great. He's been in so many movies; it's ridiculous. I know, I, and he, he even makes a, a not a great movie great. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's exactly. one of those actors. He's so he's so all in. And and he was. I mean, I, I was a big fan of the the book and the, and the movie To Kill a Mockingbird. Interesting thing about this is the the play is a bit different. It's a little edgier, but it was it was wonderful. Alan Sorkin wrote it, so he oh interesting. He rewrote it, sort of. 
But anyway, it's interesting. Excellent. Yeah, I thought it was funny that um, speaking of uh, the Bucks in Milwaukee, yeah. is, is there was such outrage about how uh, these uh, ESPN are like Milwaukee's a terrible city, <laughs> and you know, people are people. It's like I, you know what? I, I've been all over the world as you have. Yeah. You know, you, you go all over the world and you come home and you realize, you, you know what? This city is great. Yeah. You know, it's I, it's like no matter where you go, there you are. And if somebody else doesn't think Milwaukee's cool, I don't give a shit. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, one time uh, uh, James Taylor was in town, and and I. I you know, Luis Conti is playing percussion. He was in the Phil Collins band. And right. and uh, he decided he was staying at the uh, the, the hotel, <laughs> what, uh, the Fister. The he Fister, was at the Fister yes. Hotel. And I said, well, yeah, come on over. You know, I thought he was going to take an Uber or something. And he, he drove his bike all the way from, you know, the Fister to my house in Whitefish Bay, took Lake Drive. He came here and he said, hey, man, you know, he's, he's Cuban. He goes, hey, man, I can't believe this place is paradise. It was it was summer. It was, you know, people were on the beach. It looks like Malibu. Yes, he, he said, absolutely. He said, every time I came to Milwaukee, I was in my hotel room and I thought, oh, what a boring city. And then he took his bicycle and he said, what a paradise this place is. He says, I see yeah, why so you live here now. Right. Yeah, he didn't know. Yeah, you walk down by the you walk down by the lake and especially in summertime. And it's uh, it's my buddy Rick Vito was in town and we took a little uh trip down by the lake. He's like, I lived in Maui for years. He goes, and this looks like Maui. Yeah. I'm like, well, I, I wish, I wish it was a little warmer <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Maui, but <laughs> yeah, just don't come in February. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. Then you won't be feeling those Maui vibes. <laughs> that, you know, it's funny when, when that, I, I like November, December. I like when there's winter, but then I kind of get sick of it at about mid January. I'm ready to get out of here. Absolutely. And that's usually when my wife and I will take a trip or, you know, or else, Genesis or Phil Collins will start rehearsing. Yay. You know? Yes. And then I get out for a couple of months before it all, you know, gets. gets That's why I always look forward to the NAM show happening because it's, it's that end of January. You're in Southern California. Yeah. You usually put a few things around it and then you get that well needed respite. Oh, of yeah. Breaking yeah. out. As, as you said, the first few snowfalls, they're like, oh, winter, hooray. Yeah. And then once February and uh, March roll around, you're like, oh, my God, I, I just can't take yeah, it. Yeah. But I, I, I don't find the NAM show restful, though. <laughs> That's true. There's so many people. That, but everything outside it, of it is great. Exactly. Yeah, I, I I enjoy it too, but it's 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 the ambience of the the, the din in the room is like oh my god. Oh, exactly. I'm worn out and like yeah, an the, hour. the the noise that doesn't end. Exactly. It, it it's definitely a. It, those are long days, but when you go outside, it's glorious. But, but I'll but I'll tell you <laughs> one little quick story about Nam. When you're always at Nam, and I had my bag, and I was got my I got my. Um, ticket you know you have to go up and get your ticket and i went walking around and i was gone for a half hour i was at the second floor i'm going wait a minute where's my bag i had left my bag probably right where i was getting my ticket right on the ground and i was running back oh my god i had my keys in there my wallet oh cds that i had with with me i couldn't believe it i looked i came around the corner there it was no one took it I was thinking, the NAM people are great. These kind of people come here aren't stealing from you, you know. I mean, it was still sitting there, and I was gone a half an hour. And I was just walking around talking with people, not thinking, you know, you think a lot of, because normally you don't carry a bag with you. So you got your wallet in your back pocket, you got your keys in your pocket. No, it was all there. I thought thought that was it. Oh, you know, and I had a rented car, and it's, oh, God. Uh, it reminds me, I had a similar experience. I, I, um, I had to do some clinics in the San Francisco area. So I flew into the San Francisco airport, and they have that uh, tram system there. Yeah. T- takes you to where the car rental plays. I'll never forget it. Have my stuff, my guitar, bag. I usually have my backpack with all of my stuff in it, just as you described. Computer, yeah. phone, everything is in that backpack. Passport, the whole night. Oh, yeah. So, so I go to the rental car. And uh, get my keys. I, I I go into the rental car and I'm packing the stuff in. And I realize, okay, guitar check, bag check. Where where's my backpack? And I thought, oh, you know, I must I must have left it up at the counter, right? Yeah. So I so I take the elevator up. Then I make sure I take the same elevator just in case. And I go up and I'm retracing my steps. And I go, I'm like, you know, I must have left my my backpack up here. No, no, no backpack. I'm like, oh. 
And now I'm starting to freak out because I'm realizing I'm sunk. All my stuff that I need is in here. So I go over to the little atrium area where these, these trains come and go. And there's a, a security guard there. And I'm like, uh, so how many of these trains are there? He goes, oh, there's there's six of them. I'm like, oh. And I go, how often do they come? Well, the next one will be here in 15 minutes. So I'm just waiting there just like contemplating what a sh- shit show I'm involved in. And the vehicle comes and it stops and the doors open. And I look at the back of it the, and there it is. Oh, my God. In San Francisco. San Francisco. And I went and I grabbed it. I was like, I don't know what this is all about, but uh, I'm glad that at some point, karmically, this lined up. <laughs> oh, man. See, that's I mean, you know what? I always have this thing that I think it's going to be there. If I've I've been at a Starbucks one time when I went home and I went, oh, my God, my jacket's sitting on the back of this chair. It's going to be there. And then there. Right. But, you know, it all depends on where you are. But I mean, that's yeah. What a great story. I mean. Oh, what a panic that is, though. Yeah. You know. Oh, it is. I did have one scenario where it was not that. I was in, oh. uh, I was in France. I, I, it, what was crazy about it was I, I go down to, the, and it's we were checking out at noon because we didn't really need to be anywhere, so it was a late checkout. So we're we're going down to um, get a coffee and hang out, and wait for our ride to come, and so we we go downstairs. And I put my guitars down. It's always the same. Guitars, backpack, luggage, right? Put it down. I turn around. My buddy stays there, the bass player. And I go and I get a coffee and I come back. And I look down. I'm like, where's my backpack? And so we look and I did the same thing. Backtracked all the way back to my room. It's gone. And then I say to the the guy at the front car, do you have security cameras here? He's like, yeah. So we look at this, we get the security camera and we see, literally we have, we have footage of me and my buddy coming down, putting our stuff on the ground, me turning around and a guy just appearing with like a sweater over his arm. And he grabs, he, he grabs my backpack, puts it underneath the sweater and just heads out. I'm like, you've got to be kidding That's me. That's it. So my, my passport, my phone, my wallet. Everything was gone. Luckily, um, we had to fly back to Paris that next day, and the guy that I was traveling with who arranged the whole tour had a PDF of my passport on his BlackBerry. So we were able to print that out to at least get me on the plane Ah. to go back to Paris, run over to the embassy, and within two hours at the embassy, I had a new passport. It was amazing. So it it all panned out, but it's, yeah, it's those stuff, it's that road stuff. These stories that you think about, like, oh my God, I I can't believe that happened. (laughs) As we get older, we get a little more absent-minded. Absolutely. No, no doubt about it. I'm always joking about Prevagen. Like, it's a Prevagen moment. Yeah. And w- when you talk about that, people think that's a kind of guitar, right? That's a guitar brand. Exactly. Yeah. Where can I get one of those? <laughs> yeah. Great call closet. Prevagen. <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah. I- Rock that Prevagen. <laughs> Prevagen pickups. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, listen, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great talking with you again. It's been a while. Oh, man, it's been a while, but this is great. It was like it was just having a conversation. It was fantastic. Good, clean fun. (laughs) Well, hopefully we'll get to uh, hang out again in person one of these days in the not-too-distant future. I'd like that. It'd be fun. We will. We will definitely do that. All right, well, please say hello to the gang for me. Great to see you, and we'll talk soon. All right, thanks, Greg. Thanks, Daryl. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon.